Good morning, everybody. Good to have you with us. Good to be back. Um, if you've got a Bible, please keep it open at Acts 13. That's where we're going to be spending our time. And while you're doing that, let me tell you that every so often, and you'll know this, uh, when, you, um, when you live long enough, you'll reach a point where you need to make a decision. Uh, we call it a fork in the road, don't we? Where you need to make a choice, and that choice is going to have a long-term impact. Um, so, you know, do you buy a Holden or do you buy a Ford? Um, possibly neither. Uh, do you pursue a trade? Or do you aim for university? Do you have the operation? Will you accept the proposal of marriage? Uh, will you take the promotion? I mean, you'll have your own examples, but all of us will face major decisions at some point that will alter the, uh, the rest of our lives. And in Acts th- chapter 13, that's exactly what's happening. We have a group of people who are forced into making a major decision. After having been presented with compelling evidence, will they accept that risen from the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and further, will they look to him for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life? I want to put it to you today that both for the original audience and for us, these issues raise critical questions that are deeply practical and they have long-term consequences. So I'm going to pray as we take a closer look at Acts chapter 13. I invite you to join me as I do that. Why don't we pray? Gracious God, we do thank you for your life-giving word. And we pray that your spirit would guide us in all truth this morning, that we would see Jesus as he is. That in seeing Jesus as he is, we would embrace him as Lord and Saviour. And that we'd continue to live for him. And we ask that through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I feel like I should give you a warning up front. I'm about to preach a sermon on a sermon, all right? Now, that's dangerous because uh, if you find sermons boring, then this way may well be double trouble. I'll do my best. But then again, on the other hand, this is a long passage. Rosemary didn't read all of it. Um, and so I can't cover everything. And so if I leave out something you think is important, let's just all imagine how good it would have been and you can tell me all about it over morning tea. Like all good communication, the Apostle Paul, our preacher, he has an end goal. He has a target in mind. And so if we were, as we put it, to cut to the chase, it would be this, verse 32, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us. How's he done that? By raising up Jesus from the dead. And to that conclusion, Paul adds this call to action. Verse 38, I want you to know, speaking to all of the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, the converts to Judaism, I want you to know that through Jesus, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, I want you to know that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that raises the question, well, what do we do with this news? And so here's my summary of Paul's sermon Risen from the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. God promised a saviour. The the prophets announced a saviour. John the Baptist revealed the saviour. The saviour has been shown to be Jesus. And so the question then, will you receive the saviour? That's the essence of Paul's sermon. Or you might say, well, that's terrific, but that was then. That's all very interesting. What do we make? of Paul's sermon. Where does it touch the ground today? 
Or to ask that same question another way, why has this sermon been recorded and what are we supposed to do with the information? Well, to help us answer some of those questions, I'm going to share with you a high-level analytical tool. It's a tool that I learned while I was studying for my MBA, and it goes like this. It's the WSWNW model. All right, now let me break that down and make it a little more straightforward for you. It's the what, the so what, and the now what. All right, there are thousands of dollars in tuition fees, and that's all I can remember. It's sad, isn't it? To make sense of Paul's sermon, we need to agree on the what. God has done something, but we need to understand, we need to have an agreement on what that is. And then from the what, we reach the decision point, the fork in the road, as we ask ourselves, well, so what? God's done something, so what? And then we're in a position to consider the impact of our decision, which is the the now what? What's going to be different How is my life going to change? The what, the so what, and the now what. So to begin, what has God done? Now, I've got a map on the screen behind me because I don't know about you, but when I listen to something like the book of Acts being read, you hear of all of these different places and it doesn't really kind of connect. So here's a map. You can see on the the right-hand side where they leave from Antioch, okay, And they go to Cyprus. Cyprus is still there. We kind of know where that is. They head north to a place called Perga, which we don't really know. um, You know, that doesn't kind of connect with us. And then they head to a place called Pisidian Antioch, which is in Turkey. All right? Now, that's the very northern point of where we're looking. Now, why are there two cities called Antioch? Well, because they're named after the same leader. I mean, why name one city after yourself when you can have two? So, why does the geography matter? That's the question we should be asking. Why does the geography matter? It matters because Jesus is keeping his promise. This time last year when we started in the book of Acts, you might remember in chapter 1 Jesus says this. It's it's a command but it's actually really a promise. He says to his disciples, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, now given that Jesus was speaking to 12 ordinary people and sometimes very ordinary, let's face it, this is a bold promise. You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And now we have in this sermon the first of its kind as someone speaks about Jesus outside of Israel. Here is Paul preaching about the forgiveness of sins outside of the chosen nation of God, meaning that what Jesus promised is taking place. You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, and now it's starting to happen. And I want to say to you that even before we get to the detail of Paul's sermon, which we will, there's a practical dimension for those of us who've been Christians for a while, and it's this. Paul is about to put forward a comprehensive historical account upon which our faith in Jesus is built. And I mentioned that because of the loud, increasingly anti-Christian thought leaders in our community. Despite what they might have to say, I want to reassure you there are really good, solid reasons for taking Jesus seriously. 
And so as Paul lays out the what, what has God done, let's see how this unfolds. I'm going to read from verse 15. Paul and Barnabas, they visit a local synagogue. Okay, now what happens? After the reading from the law and the prophets, now that's what we'd call the Old Testament because the New Testament hasn't been written yet. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, that is Paul and Barnabas, saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation or encouragement, then please speak. Now, I have to say, as far as welcome to church strategies go, this is pretty intense. You've just walked in, they've noticed you're new, have you got something to tell us? Why don't you get up and speak? Now, having been sent out into the the nations under the power of the Holy Spirit, it perhaps shouldn't come as a surprise to us that Paul and Barnabas get this opportunity. And let me just pause for a second and ask you this question by way of challenge. If someone said to you, tomorrow morning, you've lined up for coffee and they say, tell me, why should I take Jesus seriously? What would you say? Where would you start? What would you emphasise? What Bible passage might you refer to? First thing that we need to notice about Paul's message here is that he tailors the content of what he's about to say to his audience. He's speaking to Jews, expatriate Jews, because we're outside of Israel now, speaking to Jews, and he's speaking to non-Jews who've come to worship the God of Israel. Okay, So it's a mixed audience. But nevertheless, there's a shared Jewish history here. And so Paul can speak about events of the Old Testament and people will know what he means. In coming chapters, there'll be no shared connection with the audience and so Paul's going to have to take a different approach. But here, he can start at the beginning. So verse 17, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. Now, by my count, that's 10 words in English in which Paul has summarised Genesis 12 through 50. That's pretty impressive. Overall, Paul's historical summary goes like this. God chose a people, God rescued a people, God housed a people, God blessed a people, and God has raised up a saviour king for his people. All up, in just over 200 words in our Bible, Paul covers the entire history from the promise of a saviour through to the revelation of a saviour through John the Baptist. It's pretty impressive. What has God done? As promised, he's provided a saviour. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And because Paul is speaking to a Jewish audience, he can refer to King David. Verse 32 I've found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. There's an accolade, isn't it? God never spoke like that about any other king. And so for Jews, David is the high point. He's the one they all look back to. Gosh, we could do with another David, couldn't we? One who, dare I say it, would make Israel great again. Couldn't do with another David. But David's dead. You can go and visit his tomb. And so what Paul does, he says, look, 
David was great, but one greater than David has come. And three times from the Old Testament, Paul will demonstrate why Jesus is superior to David. Let's look at one of them, Psalm 16. So it's stated elsewhere, Paul says, referring to Psalm 16, you'll not let your holy one see decay. Now, Psalm 16, when you go back and look at it, at the title, it says it's a psalm of David. But it can't be about David because David's dead. And David's body decayed. And so for this reason, verse 36, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, that is, he died, he was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. Psalm 16 can't be about David. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a saviour of Israel, but he wasn't the saviour of Israel. So verse 32, and here's where Paul joins the dots for his audience. What God has promised, he has fulfilled for us by raising up Jesus. Here's the point. What has God done? Well, having raised Jesus from the dead, verse 38, Paul explains what God has done, but he puts it in the form of an invitation. I want you to know, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, that is through Jesus, risen from the dead, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. David couldn't do that. And so we need to hear the force of this, regardless of how good you are or not, regardless of your family connections or not, Paul's message boils down to this, you need a saviour and his name is Jesus. That's the what. God promised a saviour, his prophets announced the saviour, Jesus has been revealed as the saviour, but so what? Well, the question is, will you receive the saviour? I want you to consider something for a minute, just kind of step back from the passage for a second. As we listen to this ancient sermon, it's easy to forget Paul was speaking about Jesus to a mixed audience outside of Israel. No one's done this before. And just because Paul was invited to speak, that doesn't guarantee the audience will like what they hear. Actually, last time somebody spoke like this about Jesus in the book of Acts, was back in chapter 7. Paul, or Saul, as he was then called, he would remember that because he was there. On that day, the person speaking was Stephen. The audience listening killed him. And Saul, Paul, our preacher here, looked on with approval. What I'm saying is this question of so what is no matter of idle speculation. This is life and death stuff here. People's eternal destiny then and now rests on the question, so what are you going to do about this? And with that, we've reached the fork in the road. We've heard about what God has done, so what are we going to do about it? A decision is required here, and it's one of those situations where even not making a decision is actually making a choice. So Paul, he applies some pressure. And he 
speaking to a Jewish audience so he can appeal to the prophets here. He says to them, verse 40, take care, it's a warning, that what the prophets have said doesn't happen to you. He quotes from the prophet Habakkuk, look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days you'd never believe even if someone told you. Are you going to receive the Saviour or are you going to scoff at him? And scoffing can take a couple of different forms. It can be sort of polite indifference through to murderous opposition, but really it amounts to the same thing. So will you offer, will you rather accept the offer? Or are you going to scoff at God's invitation of forgiveness and eternal life? That's what Paul is saying to them. And predictably, the response in Pisidian Antioch was divided as it is today, whenever somebody speaks of Jesus and his offer of forgiveness. That being said, I'm going to make the assumption that for many people here, you've already made the decision to follow Jesus, to accept his offer of forgiveness, to look to his cross for salvation and to live the genuinely transformed life as we wait for him to return. To us then, the question becomes, now what? What do we do now? I want to say to you that you've got a saviour to live for. Listen to verse 43. We get a glimpse into what Paul will develop in later letters. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism, that is the the foreigners, they followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them. And what did they talk about? They urged them to continue in the grace of God. They received Jesus Christ as Lord. They are urged to continue. If you're taking notes... Have a look later at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue. Now what? Well, having received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue more and more because you've got a saviour to live for. And I want to tell you that I see this happening. There are people in our church today who are actively serving Jesus and who've joined growth groups who, when I first arrived, by their own admission, they were fringe members at best of our church. There are people serving Jesus in our church now who hadn't served him in that way previously. All this points to me to the God who is growing his people. It's the outworking of the vision of our church to see people transformed by Jesus more and more. You've got a saviour to live for, verse 43, so continue. I wonder if you've considered this. One of the reasons we sit here today under the loving authority of the Lord Jesus is because Christians in Antioch were convicted that people needed to hear about forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And those people in Antioch convicted that people needed to hear, they acted on that conviction and they sent out Paul and Barnabas. So I want to say to you, with that same conviction, I urge you, I urge all of us to follow their example. I urge you to take your place in one of our ministry programs. I urge you to pray for the work of our church. I urge you to continue generously funding the work of our church so that we might reach the lost people of Dural. 
and that we might reach them with this, verse 38. My friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. God will determine how people respond. That's up to him. My friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And so as a church, may God take us and use us for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your loving patience towards us. We thank you that through others we've been invited to receive forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. We thank you for those who shared this news with us. And by your spirit, may you convict us to do likewise. That Jesus would be glorified by the building of his kingdom as people come to know him, to love him and to serve him as Lord and Saviour. Father, would you hear our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord.